Who is what? Who keeps yelling good morning or who is, uh, good morning. Former U.S. Ambassador to Spain, Dick Capon, writes in the introduction to his book entitled Finish Strong of a memo that he received from then-President George Bush. The memo was simple yet profound and it read as follows. Dick, above all, finish strong. George Bush, the White House, January 5th, 1993. Capon goes on to write in the introduction to his book these words. It says it was a cold January morning, 4,000 miles from the White House, when the President's letter arrived at my embassy office in Madrid. In a few days, George Bush would be turning over his responsibilities, and shortly thereafter, I would be leaving my job as ambassador. He knew it would be tempting for his ambassadors around the world just to coast until he left office. He says, coasting was unacceptable to President Bush. As I read those words and subsequently the book to follow, I was deeply impressed by the sense of urgency to accomplish goals by those who knew that their time was limited. There was an acute awareness that time was precious and certainly a, a resource too valuable to waste. And to President Bush, he writes, coasting was unacceptable because that was a man who understood that time was valuable and a resource to be used extremely wisely. And as Christians, I was thinking as, as uh, ambassadors for Jesus Christ and citizens of another kingdom, we're left here on this earth to accomplish his purposes and we're giving a very short and limited period of time in which to do that. And uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter 4, because in this particular passage, Peter gives us hope beyond a, what I call hope beyond a wasted life. It's using the time that we're given in an effective manner and one that will be pleasing to God. It's understanding that the time that we have here on this earth is limited and valuable and precious, and we're to be about doing the work that God has called us to do. And in this particular chapter, or this particular passage, in verses one through eleven. We, we are given four life-changing attitudes that we should cultivate that by doing so, they will help us not to waste our time here as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting with verse 1, we read these words. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all of this, they are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation and that they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has, has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling or complaining. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterance of God. And whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
in this passage that we're given four life-changing attitudes that if we cultivate them will help us not to waste the time that God has given us. And the first attitude that we see is one that I mentioned briefly last time, and that is that we're, we're told to cultivate an attitude that is a militant attitude towards sin. A militant attitude towards sin. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we read the words that we are to arm ourselves. The idea of a militant attitude is found in that particular phrase. It says to arm yourselves. It's one that has to do with a Greek soldier who is putting on armor for a battle. The Bible tells us we're in a spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6 says that we should arm ourselves or be ready for the battle that we're in. So here we are as soldiers basically on a foreign soil. We're aliens and strangers. Peter's already mentioned that throughout this particular book, that we're here for a short period of time and that God has stationed us here, as it were, on planet Earth so that we are armed and ready for the battle that lies ahead, which is a spiritual battle because our, our, you know, our warfare is not against flesh and blood but against spiritual powers and principalities. And what he's trying to help us understand is that we are in a spiritual battle. So he says to arm ourselves and be ready for this battle that we're in. Many of us aren't even aware of the battle because we haven't been busy doing what we're supposed to be doing. But I'll guarantee you this, if you start to do what God has called you to do, you're going to become very aware that we're in a battle. And uh, you need to understand that. But what's interesting to me is he says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Now, the question that I have is, goes, what do you mean the same attitude? You know, who had that type of attitude? Who had a militant attitude towards sin? Well, he's already explained to us that, you know what? Therefore, since Jesus Christ died once for all for sin, that Jesus had a militant attitude when it came to sin. You know, and there's something I want to talk about a little bit here as it relates to this whole subject because we live in an, in an age and in a culture that one of our pet words in our society today is tolerance to be tolerance. It's a good word if it's used in the proper context and employed in the, in the proper setting, but it's not a good word if it's stretched over everything that it was never intended to be stretched over. Let me just read the definition of tolerance. The word tolerant means liberal, broad-minded, willing to put up with beliefs opposed to one's convictions. The allowance of something not wholly approved Tolerance, in one sense, implies the compromise of one's convictions, a yielding of ground upon important issues. And as a result, over-tolerance in moral issues has made us, as a culture, soft and flabby and devoid of any conviction. But it's a buzzword that's used so often in our culture, but not many times do we stop to define the term. The question I have is this. Was Jesus tolerant? Was he broad-minded? Was he so broad-minded that he forgot his mission, his purpose, that he didn't use the time that he was given wisely when he was here on the face of the earth? You know, there's something about, you know, we throw it out so flippantly that we think that if we're open-minded, it's such a, a noble uh, virtue on our part. But my argument's always been this. We can be so open-minded that our brains fall out. And, and I believe that. We have become a people who are so open-minded that all reason and, and, uh, and moral convictions and things of, of any importance are just laid aside so that we can claim to be, but I'm so open-minded and tolerant. What's interesting to me is that, you know what, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm questioning in my mind, was Jesus concerned about being politically correct? The evidence in the Bible tells me that he was not. And he wasn't 
very concerned about it whatsoever. The evidence in the Bible tells me that Jesus was very narrow-minded in areas where truth and conviction were to be found. Jesus was just as narrow-minded as the sciences are narrow-minded, as mathematics is narrow-minded, as science is narrow-minded, as gravity is narrow-minded, as a compass is narrow-minded. Jesus was very narrow-minded in areas where there was no room to be open-minded, where there was no room to be tolerant. And if you doubt that, consider for a moment that Jesus was very narrow-minded about the way to get to heaven. A compass always points to magnetic north. If I were to ask you how you would get from Southern California to New York City, and you told me it really doesn't make much difference, just about any road will get you there. I would think one or two, well, I would think a couple of things about you. First, that you were nuts. And second, that you weren't being very honest. That you weren't being truthful. That you didn't really know how to get to New York City from Southern California. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles for a second to Matthew chapter 7. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7. Because what's really amazing to me is that in the culture we live, I hear on a somewhat regular basis Jesus brought into arguments about moral issues concerning our society. And you usually hear this, Jesus is open-minded, he's loving, he's accepting, he certainly wouldn't condemn that type of behavior because God is a God of love and Jesus would be very tolerant Jesus would be politically correct. Now the question I have is, what Jesus are they talking about? And where do they get this information? Because as I read the Bible, I see a very intolerant Jesus when it comes to certain truth. And in Matthew chapter 11, I mean chapter 7, we read this in verses 13 through 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Enter by the narrow gate. Isn't that interesting? We live in a culture today that, you know what, all roads lead to heaven. Whatever your belief system is, as long as you're sincere and you sincerely believe it, and you try your hardest, that somehow it's going to get you to where you think you're going to go. And Jesus said, that's baloney. That's nonsense. You need to enter by the narrow gate because broad is the road that leads to destruction. That most people are on that road. The majority of people in life are on the road that leads to destruction because very few people find that narrow gate. He's saying that the road that's broad lacks in faith and convictions and morals. It's easy. It's popular. It's careless. It's the way of the crowd. It's the way of the majority. It's the way most people that you and I know are on, the, are on that particular road. And there are many, many, many who go by that path. Now the question I have for you is this. Jesus should know the way to heaven 
better than anyone since he has been there, left there, came here, and went back there. He's got a pretty good idea of the directions. I want to ask someone for directions who has been where I want to go and can safely point me in the right way. I don't want to ask for someone's opinion who has never been there and isn't really sure if they're telling you the truth or not. I want to hear the truth. Jesus was in heaven, left heaven, came to earth, did his job, and has returned to heaven. And he says, if you want to get there, then you need to enter by the narrow gate. John 14, he explained what that narrow gate is. Because his disciples said, you're going to your father, how do we get there? And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the father but through me. There is only one way to get to heaven. All roads don't lead there. All religions don't lead there. And people say, well, that's not politically correct. Who cares? Truth is truth, and truth sets people free. If we hedge on the truth and don't share the truth, then we are a liar and we are a deceiver when we know what the truth is. And as a result, we find out that Jesus was very intolerant toward those who were lying to people, telling them that there was some other way to get to heaven. We have a world of people who are telling you you can believe whatever you want to believe, and somehow that will get you to heaven. They are lying to you. There is only one way to get to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than the name of Jesus. And we need to recognize that and understand that because every other road, the variety of roads that are out there, lead, they're broad, and they lead to destruction. Jesus said in John 3.16, and he went on to say in John 3.17, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. He went on to say this, The Son did not come into the world to judge this world because the world has been judged already. We are all on the fast track to hell. We need to recognize that and understand that. Jesus plainly pointed the way to heaven. And he was intolerant toward any other suggestions otherwise. Jesus was narrow-minded about the way to heaven. Jesus was also intolerant towards hypocrisy. He said, woe to the scribes and Pharisees. You're whitewashed on the outside and you're all cleaned up but you're filthy, dirty from within. And he said it over and over again. And that probably wasn't a politically correct thing to say. But you know what? He looked at people and he knew their heart and said, you're, you're a phony, you're fooling people, but you don't fool God because I know your heart and you're filthy, dirty within. Ooh, not a politically correct statement. You know, we, are so, we, we have gotten so gullible and so foolish in our culture that we're so concerned about being politically correct and labeled as tolerant and open-minded that we've set aside all truth so we can carry proudly a label of foolishness. And we need to recognize that Jesus was very militant and intolerant toward hypocrisy. He was intolerant toward selfishness. 
He said, you want to follow me? Then sell all your possessions and come and follow me. And the rich man who had many things turned and walked away. Why? Because he was a selfish man of heart. He didn't want to do what that young man in Mexico did that said, I'm going to burn all my stuff that even represents anything close to my previous life because all things pass away and all things are new in Christ. He didn't want to give that all up to follow Jesus and see what he had to offer because he was a man of much stuff. Jesus warned that, you know what, when the seed was sown, that there would be some that would be choked out. Why? Because of the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Well, okay, yeah, I, I know something's missing in my life, but I got all this cool stuff, and I know you have something to offer, but I don't want to exchange all this stuff to follow you. I'm going to stick with the stuff, even though I'm not, you know, I'm not content, I'm not happy, something's missing in my life, and I see you have something to offer, but I can't give this up because this stuff's pretty cool, and it's taken me a long time to get it. The deceitfulness of riches. See, he was intolerant toward selfishness. He was also very intolerant toward sin. Give you an illustration. In John chapter 8, when he talked to the woman who was guilty of adultery, what did he say to her? Hey, that's cool. You know, I, you know, if that's, hey, you know, who am I to judge? You know, if you want to have sex with somebody other than your husband, and, you know, and you've got several husbands, and that's what you want to do, and that's cool to you, and hey, you know what? That's cool. Because I don't want to judge you, and I certainly don't want to condemn you. And I don't want to point out the truth to you because I want to be popular and I'm really interested in what the latest public opinion poll says. And so I've got my people out there, you know, making phone calls and we're finding out that, you know what, they're really down on me whenever I start talking about truth and sin and start talking about right and wrong. And so, I, you know, I need to, if I want to be re-elected as God. <laughs> See, the cool thing is that he didn't have to worry about that. And so when he ran into this woman who was guilty of adultery, what did he say to her? Hey, you know what? I don't condemn you like the rest condemn you. I forgive you, but go and sin no more. He called it as it was. You're a sinner. I've come to set you free. I've come to forgive you. But don't ever mistake the fact that your behavior is wrong before God and you're a sinner. And go and sin no more. The Bible is very intolerant towards sin. I don't know if you've taken any time to read it. Um, but if you have, you might notice these words. Isaiah 1.16 says, Wash yourself, make yourself clean, put away the evil of your doings before my eyes, and cease doing evil. 1 Corinthians 15.34 says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Isaiah 55.7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. You know, God is very intolerant towards sin. Hey, do you, do you see this past week there's a fire in San Diego? Have you noticed how when it gets hot, you know, Southern California and all of California tends to burn? It has something to do with no rain, but I'm not sure what the theory is there. Um, but there's a big fire, right? And one of the interesting things, have you ever seen how firefighters fight fire? They set back fires. Have you ever seen that? You think, well, what's the, what's the best weapon that we have to fight a fire? And oftentimes, the best weapon is to start another fire. You think, well, that sounds kind of silly, but it works. And you'll see firemen out on the line who will start a backfire. The backfire will burn up to where the other fire is burning. And what it does is it creates a path there between the fire where it's coming and the fire that's going so that all the vegetation in between burns up and there's no more vegetation to burn. And so the fire just dies out because there's nothing else to burn. And so there's this backfire concept. 
which is really interesting because you know what? God employs the same type of warfare. He fights fire with fire. And what I mean by that is this, that God sent Jesus Christ here on this earth to die for our sins. He fought fire with fire. Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself and he stopped the path of destruction that would take place that none of us, none of us are righteous. Not one of us would have been saved. We would have all been on the broad road heading to hell and that fire would have consumed every one of us if it wasn't for the fact that God sent Jesus into the world to start a backfire to take care of the problem of sin. Isn't that great stuff? And he died on the cross for our sin. And all that he asks or calls us to do is understand that we are sinners who are lost forever on our road to hell. And God stepped in and intervened in human history. And he took the judgment of the, of the world that would have been our judgment and laid it upon Jesus Christ himself. He took the sins of the world upon himself, died on the cross so that you and I would not have to be judged for our sin. He was our judgment for us. Do you realize how wonderful and beautiful and why the gospel of Jesus Christ is called good news? It should be called great news. That's the greatest news that I could ever hear that someone else would pay my penalty and my price for me so that I do not have to go to hell on that road of destruction. See, we need to recognize and understand that Jesus died once and for all, for the sins of the world, and there is nothing that you and I can do to add to it or subtract from it. All we need to do is in humility accept what God has done for us and say, thank you, Lord, and I invite Jesus Christ into my life. Thank you, God, for saving me, a sinner that I am. And God demonstrated his love for us, and yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need to recognize and understand that Jesus Christ was militant towards sin. He was so militant towards sin and he hated sin so much that he left heaven, he came to earth, he suffered and he died and he rose again triumphant over sin and over the grave and there's no more sting anymore in our lives because Jesus was militant towards sin. He wasn't tolerant or politically correct about it. He did what needed to be done so that the truth would set us free. We need to understand that and recognize it. Why did he do that? Why is he militant towards sin? Hey, you know what? Why should you be militant towards sin? Why should I be militant towards sin? Why should that be an attitude in my life? I'll tell you why. Because sin sent Jesus to the cross. It was sin that sent him to the cross. It was sin that took him out of heaven and sent him to earth in the form of a bondservant so that he could die for you and I. It was sin that smacked him around when the soldiers ridiculed and made fun of him. It was sin that caused him to spit in his face. It was sin that caused him to be crowned with thorns. It was sin that caused him to be called stripped naked so that he could gamble away for his clothes. It was sin that caused him to be nailed to a cross. It was sin that caused all of that for someone who knew no sin and did nothing wrong and didn't deserve it, but he paid the price for us. Why should you and I be militant towards sin? Because God is militant towards sin. And as, as his, his ambassadors here on earth, we better reflect his value system. There are some things that are right and wrong, and sin is still wrong. Sin destroys lives. Sin brought forth death both spiritually and physically. Sin destroys relationships. Sin sidetracks us from our purposes as ambassadors here on earth. 
It's sin in the life of the Christian that causes unbelievers to mock the work of Jesus Christ and doubt God's plan for salvation because they say to us, if, sin, if God sent you free, set you free from sin, then why are you still doing the things that you're doing? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. That plan doesn't make any sense at all. It's, it's sin that causes us as His ambassadors to, be, to, to have God Himself to be frowned upon. Can you imagine an ambassador in a foreign country guilty of breaking the law? The first thing they think about is this, this is the best you have to offer? You sent this guy or this woman to be our ambassador and they're guilty of breaking the law? What kind of country are you? This is the best you had to offer? You think about it when that accident took place in Washington, D.C. at the Russian embassy when those guys were drunk and they killed that young lady. The first thing you think about is this is the best that Russia could send us? That they would even begin to say, well, we're going we're to employ diplomatic immunity so that somebody who got just drunk out of their mind and killed a citizen of another country can get away with that? What kind of a reflection is that on, on the country? We sit and go, that's wrong. And the world around us says, you know what? But you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You're supposed to reflect the God you say you believe in. Yet you're guilty of doing all these things. I don't understand. And the typical Christian nonsense answer is this. You know what? Well, Christians aren't perfect, but they're just forgiven. And the world goes, duh. What? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Though it is true in the proper context, but not if it's, it's, a, it's a license to do what's wrong before God. We need to have a militant attitude towards sin. Sin wastes time, and time is limited, and time is precious. Notice how Peter addresses this back in 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 2, two and 3. It says, Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, in verse 1, arm yourselves, be ready for the battle, also with the same purpose in mind that Jesus had, who was militant towards sin, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Look what it says. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He's saying, hey, you know what? We need to have a militant attitude towards sin. And in the process, you know what? We're not, no longer here to please ourselves, but we're here to please God. That's the big difference. We're not here to please ourselves anymore. And he goes on to explain how we used to please ourselves. And if we're still doing that, we need to stop doing it because that's not our purpose in being here. It says, for the time already passed. Hey, you've had enough time to do all this. You've sowed your wild oats, got it out of your system. It was, you were lonely, you were miserable, you were empty, something was missing in your life, and you turned to Jesus Christ, you invited Him into your life, and you've been born again by God. All things pass away, all things become new. It's start to do a new program. Forget about all the ways you used to do things, all the bad habits that you had and the stuff that you used to do. Hey, you've already had enough time to do that. You've pursued that lifestyle, the sensuality and the lust and the drunkenness, the carousals, the drinking parties, the adulteries, you know, the, all those things. You've done all that. You've been been there and done it. Now stop doing it because that's not part of who you are anymore and that's not a part of the way God wants you to go. Interesting word, sensuality. I was going through it. You know, you do a word study of each of these words. It's fascinating what, what's being said, but the whole, this whole concept of sensuality, just may, let me explain this one term to you and watch how it changes your life. The word sensuality comes from a region in Pisidia known by a city known as Salgate. Now, Salge was owned and operated by the Stoics, and you can read about the Stoics in Acts chapter 17. But anyway, the Stoics were people who were not too crazy about the Roman lifestyle. They were people who had a strict moral and ethical code. They did not appreciate what the Romans were doing with their attitude of eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow we die. The people that never said no to anything that would please them physically. The Stoics said, we don't like that, and we don't want that taking place here. 
So the Roman soldiers used to argue about who was going to be stationed at Shalgay. Because if you went there, you couldn't do the stuff that you could do everywhere else. It was kind of like when our soldiers were, were in the Middle East, and you know what? There was no pornography, and there was no drinking allowed, and there was none of that stuff allowed, and every, all the troops were throwing a fit because, man, if we can't thumb through a pornographic magazine at night, how are we going to kill our time? And they're saying, hey, you're in our country, you're our guest, you won't do this anymore, period. That's the way it's going to be. So that's the way it was. Well, in Selgate, it was the same thing. Okay, Romans, we know that you like to party and do all this stuff, but ain't not going to happen here. And so they used to laugh at those who end up getting stationed to Selgate. Hey, where you got? Where you going? Oh man, you know I'm going to, you know Macedonia. Oh cool, man, I got some great bars there in Macedonia. You know, I got some good partying going on. Where you going? Oh man, I'm going to Selgate. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You know, you're going to Selgate and we're not. And so it was kind of like when I lived back in Pennsylvania. Give you an illustration. Kind of tied on. When I lived in Pennsylvania, I played ball with a guy who who had gotten a scholarship to BYU. And uh, you know, and you're going from Pittsburgh, you know, where you know the the, the official beverage is a shot and a beer. And uh, you're going from Pittsburgh to BYU. All right? See, now, he was back in a semester. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Because you talk about culture shock. It was like, hey, what? What? You know? So he came back. Now, what's interesting is, turn with me for a second to Second Peter chapter 2. Look at Second Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3. So the, the word sensuality is from the Greek word that means no selge, no standard of social sanctions, no restrictions of any sort. If it feels good, do it. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, listen to this very carefully. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon them. And many will follow their, there it is, sensuality, no salgay, no sanctions, nothing's right, nothing's wrong, if it feels good, do it. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and the destruction is not asleep. Do you see what God is warning us? He's saying that there was a time then, and there was a time coming in the future, where we will assemble for ourselves teachers who will be politically correct, who will be tolerant towards sin because it will make us feel good about doing what's wrong before God. We can walk out of church. We can walk out of a Bible study. We can walk out of some denominational meeting and feel good that we can continue to do that which is wrong before God because who are we to judge and who are we to imply some sanctions upon you? And so we're going to accumulate teachers who will stand up under the guise of telling truth and who will tell you you can believe whatever you want to believe and that's okay because all behavior is forgiven by God and all roads lead to heaven and who cares anyway? And he's saying that it's a heresy, it's destructive and it's a lie from the pit of hell that there are sanctions, there is truth and that's exactly if you go back to what First Peter was saying in chapter 4. He's saying, you know what? You used to do this stuff. Don't do it no more. It's wrong. We need people to step up and say that is wrong behavior. It's not wrong because you may deal with consequences. It's not wrong because you might get some sexually transmitted disease. It's not wrong because you might get a ticket for drinking and driving. It's not wrong because of the consequences. It's wrong because the action is wrong. The consequences are irrelevant other than the fact that there will be some. 
It's the actions that are wrong. We need to, as parents, teach our children that certain actions are wrong because they're wrong before God. Not because you'll get caught, not because you'll get in trouble, not because you'll experience some kind of consequence, because if they do the action and they don't experience immediate consequence, they think it's okay. And they go, oh, you lied to me. Why? Because we said if you do it, you'll get caught. And they did it and they didn't get caught. They didn't and they didn't get in trouble like we said they would. We tell them it's wrong because what? It's wrong before God. And the action is wrong. And that's what Peter was trying to say. And you know what? And the second thing that we need to look at is this. He says, you know, and we look at all this and we go, yeah, you know what? When I, put, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, look at it says, hey, for the time already is passed in verse 3, sufficient to have carried out these desires, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, abominable adulteries. You know what? And if all that stuff was so great, you know what? I would have never been searching for truth. I would have never been searching for God because my life was miserable and I was doing all this stuff and so were you and there was something missing and something empty and you know what? You can go party all that you want but you would never have peace that only God can give you that the day that you die, you know with confidence and assurance that you're going to heaven. You can't go to enough parties and when everybody's gone and the lights are out and you're laying in bed and you're wondering what's the purpose of life, what's the meaning of life, why am I here, where am I going, and when a loved one dies, you need to know, hey, where did they go and what life's all about? What is life and death all about? There's no party in the world, no joke in the world, no carousing in the world, no movie that you'll watch, none of that kind of stuff that you do that will ever answer the deepest questions of life that only God can answer in His truth. And when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you are fulfilled, you have purpose, you have meaning, you have peace, you have contentment, and you have an assurance that only the Spirit of God can testify with your spirit that you're a child of God. And if that lifestyle was so great, then why as Christians do we go back to it? And Peter says it's like a dog going back to its vomit to eat. Why would you eat vomit when you can eat steak? But that's every time a Christian goes back to their old lifestyle, that's exactly what we're doing. And he says, you had enough time to do that. Now, guess what? You think, oh man, but you know what? And the world's going to be excited for me. I got peace, I got purpose, I've got contentment. All my friends are going to be excited, my family's going to be excited, my relatives are going to be excited. When I go tell them that, hey, you know what? I just heard the greatest news in the world, that you're going to hell. But that's okay, because God solved that problem, and He sent Jesus to die for your sins, and if you just invite Him into your life, you'll have the same purpose and meaning and contentment, and you'll have the same peace that I do. Isn't that great? And they're going, and they get scared. And not only do they get scared, but the second life-changing attitude we need to cultivate is this. We better be patient toward those people around us. We better be patient. You know why? Because they think we're nuts. They think we're nuts. Right? How many of you, when you invited Christ into your life, and you're excited about what God's doing, you couldn't wait to go tell your friends and your family and anybody who listen. You, you couldn't wait to tell people at work. Man, you couldn't wait to tell people. How many? Raise your hand. How many of you had this experience? They thought you were nuts. They wanted to run from you as fast as they could. They thought you were out of your mind. Remember in Acts where uh, the Apostle Paul is giving his testimony before uh, Festus? And he said to Paul, he goes, You know, Paul, I think your great learning has driven you crazy. You're nuts! That's what the world thinks. The world thinks we're nuts. And if you don't believe it, listen to what God says. They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. But they'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard uh, to the body, but lived according to God in regard to the spirit. All right? What is he saying here? The world around us. Remember, we're ambassadors. We're in a foreign country. They're going to look at our language. They're going to look at our culture. They're going to look at our behavior. And they are going to think we're nuts. You don't believe that? Here's what they usually say. You want a drink? Uh, no, I don't want a drink. What's the matter? Is it against your religion? No. What do we say? No, I just decided I just, I just don't drink anymore. Oh, you're an alcoholic? <laughs> well, no, I just, I just decided I just... And we, we, we're, we're idiots. We, we, we fumble around and bumble around like morons. We really do. Hey, you want to go? We're going to go to a party. Hey, you want to go? Uh, no, that's okay. You know, kids. Uh, no, my, my uh, mom and dad, uh, they, no, they won't let me. Oh, they won't let you? Oh, they won't have to know? Um, well, then, um, let's see. Well, let's, what, what other feeble reason can I give? Um, oh, no, I'm busy that night. Oh, okay. Hey, but where's the party next week? Uh, I think I'm busy then, too. Well, how about the week after? No, I think so, too, then. What are you doing? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we, we don't know what to say. You know, because we don't know how, how to do this. And so they think we're nuts. They think we're weird. You know, but the problem is, is that, you know, uh, we are weird. We really are. If we don't do what they do, they think we're weird. And the uh, truth of the matter is, <laughs> some of us are really weird. Uh, <laughs> But we'll get into that in a minute. Turn with me. What are we going to do, show and tell now? <laughs> Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. In Luke 19, verse 1, we're introduced to a man who was lost. He was lost. Now, we need to define our terms because if we're to be patient to those who are lost, we need to understand what it means to be lost. In Luke 19, verse 1, we read, And he, Jesus, entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must come and stay at your house. And he hurried and he came down and he received him gladly. And when they saw it, the crowd around him, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if, and there's that condition again we talked about, and if, and since this is so, I have defrauded other people, I will give back to them four times as much as I've taken. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Just let me close and put something together here. Say, when were we lost? When was Zacchaeus lost? Was he lost the day that he stole from people as a tax gatherer? What he was saying was, you know what? I've ripped people off in my lifetime. Rome required that I collect a certain fee from each individual, but I would lie and I would add to it. And anything that I could get above and beyond which I was accountable to give, then I could keep for myself. That's why this guy had a lot of bucks, because he would abuse his position of power and authority. And so as Jesus came into town, Zacchaeus had a a yearning and a longing and a hunger and something missing in his life, and he knew that, you know what, wealth didn't do it, riches didn't do it. In fact, anybody that has any money can tell you the same thing. So often in our life, so many of us are so busy struggling trying to accumulate material things that we don't sense to realize until we get those things that it's not providing for us what we're looking for anyway, which is peace with God and contentment in life. And so that's why the rich young ruler had many things but turned and walked away. Even though he knew something was missing in his heart, he wasn't willing to give those things up. And as we look at the world around us that are trying to fill these things with other stuff, Zacchaeus was a man who had all of that. He had wealth, he had position, he had privilege, he had power, he had authority, and yet he knew that Jesus had something to offer that the world could not give. And so here was a man who humbled himself before God, who climbed into a tree. As Jesus came by, he called out and said, Zacchaeus, Come on down out of there. It's time for me to come to your house. And Zacchaeus, the Bible says, received him gladly. And a sign that he had repented in his heart and he had received Jesus Christ as a Savior was that he said, since I have robbed from people, I will return to them because what I had done was wrong and I recognize that I too am a sinner. And he received Jesus gladly. And Jesus said to him, you know what? Today, salvation has come to this man's heart. You see, we need to be patient toward people who are lost because they don't know they're lost. We need to be patient toward men as men who we come in contact with because men, as we all know, when when we are lost, we do not ask for directions. We will try to figure it out on our own. And when we're lost, we're lost. You say, but when was he lost? Was he lost the day that he first cheated somebody? The Bible says no. He was lost the day that sin entered into the world when Adam sinned and rebelled against God. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that he, as well as us, and the rest are children of wrath. Our nature is a sin nature. We have already been condemned and judged by God. That's what Jesus said in John 3, 17. He didn't come in to condemn the world. The world's already been condemned. The world was condemned the day that Adam rebelled before God. And we have a congenital birth defect called sin nature that needs to be eradicated by the backfire that only Jesus can offer as he dies for our sin on the cross. You see, we need to recognize and understand the rest of the world around us thinks we're weird because they don't realize how lost they are because they're on the road that leads to destruction that's broad and many, many, many people are traveling and bought into that lie. All roads do not lead to heaven. Jesus was very intolerant towards such a lie because he had been there, he had come here, and he had gone back, and he knows better than any of us the way to heaven. And he says that I am that way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no man can come unto the Father but through me. We need a patient attitude toward the lost because as so many of us know, sometimes when we're lost, we don't even know how lost we are. There's a highway that went to Alaska. And uh, the sign on it was, 
be careful and choose your rut carefully because you're going to be in it for the next 700 miles. You know, and some of us are in a rut and we think we're in a groove and we're not. We need to be patient toward people around us because they're lost. And as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our behavior here in this world should attract them to the light because we're light and darkness and we need to recognize that we have a responsibility because the time is short and we need to get busy being the light that God called us to be. We'll look at the next two attitudes the next time. Father, thank you again for your word. We just thank you that, um, that you're not a God who is politically correct. We thank you you're not a God who is tolerant toward things that should not be tolerated. We thank you that you're a God who so hated sin and so militant toward sin that you sent Jesus Christ to die on our behalf. God, help us today if anybody's here today and has never invited Christ into their life and they recognize that they're lost, that today is the day of the Lord and that they would just cry out to you, Father, I'm a sinner and I'm lost and didn't even know it, but there's a yearning and a hunger and an emptiness in my heart. And I, like Zacchaeus, have tried to fill it with many things, but yet I still long for something that's pure and something that will give me peace and contentment. And God, I believe what you say about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that you sent him to die for my sins, that he set the backfire to fight sin and destroy it once and for all. God, I just thank you, and I receive him like Zacchaeus did gladly into my heart. And I believe what you say. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, and all things pass away, and all things become new. God, I just pray that you'll change my appetites towards those things that are pleasing to you and not pleasing to myself. Father, I just thank you. In Christ's name, amen.